Despite our best attempts and intentions, we so easily misunderstand each other, don't we? On our holidays recently, we went on a family road trip down to the States, and we wouldn't have, uh, we knew that we wouldn't have our phone data plans where we were going, and we didn't particularly trust our GPS, so we went old school and printed off detailed directions from Google Maps. Thought I was going to say MapQuest, didn't you? <laughs> but we had these directions, but as soon as we crossed the border, about only about 20 minutes past the border, we misread a step on those directions. And we didn't realize it until we had gone about 45 minutes down the wrong road. <laughs> now, in the end, it was really only a minor inconvenience. We corrected course with little difficulty. But it goes to show just how easily, even little things, we can misunderstand things and end up in the wrong place, go in the wrong direction. Now, this happens, of course, in far more significant areas of life as well. And today, I want to draw your attention to an area of the teaching of Jesus that I think Christians so easily misunderstand. We get confused by it, we misunderstand it, and then we thus go astray because of it. And that is on this subject of the law. Not the law of the land of Canada, but the law of God as revealed in Scripture. See, as New Covenant people, we sometimes dismiss the law as defunct or irrelevant to us now. What I hope is today that God's Word would provide us a course correction, that it would turn us in the right direction. How does Jesus actually want us to understand this and see this? I'll ask you this time to go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17 if you were with us last summer, Matthew 5 will sound awfully familiar to you. And that's because we spent all summer going through the first 16 verses of Matthew 5. Most of which are the so-called Beatitudes or Blessed R's. But really, that whole section that we looked at really comprised just the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's probably most famous sermon ever. It goes three full chapters long. Now, for the rest of this summer, the next six weeks to be exact, I want to take us through the next big chunk of this sermon, covering the rest of Matthew 5. And over these passages, Jesus issues a number of radical challenges to his followers. And most of them, Jesus brings up some topic or some scripture, says, You've heard this. And then he goes, but I say this. And he either modifies what you've heard or adds to it or explains it. And with each one, he leaves a challenge that can actually be rather stunning if we understand them. Also, with each but I say, as he goes through this, each but I say, Jesus was issuing a claim of high authority. He was implicitly claiming that what he was saying was at least as important as God's own words revealed in Scripture. But I say, he had the final say. See, Jesus was no mere rabbi or good teacher. 
He was far more. For the sake of context and review, let's start at the beginning of the chapter. We'll read over the first 16 verses before we continue on. Try to picture this scene in your mind, all right? Verse 1, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he had sat down, his disciples came to him. So this is early on in Jesus' ministry, but he'd already become massively popular. So Jesus turns around, notices that huge crowds of people were tagging along everywhere he went. And so he, has, he feels this burden to teach them, to spiritually care for these people. And, but he needed a place to teach them from, so he looks around, sees this mountainside, hikes a little bit up the ways, and then sits down overlooking the throng of people. His disciples come closest to him, and in verse 2 it says, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we see in this section that that God blesses his people abundantly with all kinds of blessings, really that all come from himself. From him to us. And what are all these blessings meant to lead to? They're meant to lead to us being distinctively different from the world around us for God's glory. Look how it continues. Verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Our passage for today begins in the next verse. And here, Jesus begins talking about himself, correcting some critical flaws in people's thinking about himself, or about God's word even. Now, what we're going to read, there's not an exact but I say in this first passage, but there is still an authoritative I say to you. And he still issues a radical challenge for his people even to this day. Look with me at verse 17. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. 
right there at the beginning, verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, to people in Jesus' day, Jesus is doing some pretty shocking things. And that's on top of all the miracles and healing and powerful teaching he was doing. There was other shocking things. See, often the, the people that were trusted in the land to teach God's law were suspicious of Jesus. And they were watching him closely. And every time that there seemed to be even the, the smallest infraction of the law, they would jump on that. They sometimes accused Jesus' disciples of breaking the law. Sometimes they accuse Jesus himself of breaking the law, such as, how could you heal on the Sabbath? Right? After all, that's work. How could you do this, Jesus? They're trying to trap him. Now, to be clear, Jesus never actually broke any of God's laws. If he had, it would negate our salvation entirely. We can't be saved by a sinner. But he did tend to break incorrect interpretations of God's law. And because of this, he repeatedly clashed with the religious leaders of the day and teachers of his day. In their eyes, worse yet, he he hung out with all kinds of colorful characters, to put it mildly. So when Jesus kept ending up on the opposing side of the trusted teachers of the law, people began to wonder. Jesus obviously has power, and he speaks with authority, and he claims to be sent from God. But he sure seems opposed to the law, and that's from God. I wonder, could, could God have actually sent Jesus maybe to end the law? Could he be starting a new thing? I mean, the rumors flew. Could Jesus be doing something earth-shaking here, starting a, a new era for us? Or on the other hand, this could be all the proof people needed that Jesus was a fraud. Well, Jesus was, in fact, doing something earth-shaking. He was starting a new era. But how he would do that was being majorly misunderstood. And so here in Matthew 5, Jesus sought to squash this rumor before it got out of control. It's like, without saying exactly as much, Jesus says, you know, you may be hearing things about me. Let me set the record straight. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law, or the prophets. Now, when he says the law and the prophets there, he's not only referring to the law that we know in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, nor is he referring just to the prophets in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Habakkuk, which Pastor Kenny took you through the last few weeks. He's really talking about the whole Old Testament, the entire Hebrew Scriptures, But these scriptures were believed to be the the highest and holiest authority in the land. Everything had to go by them. The Jews believed, as we believe, that these scriptures came straight from God. So if Jesus was coming along and planning on abolishing them, that was big news. It really would be outrageous for him to do that. 
And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. That's not why I'm here. So, why am I here? What do I think of the Scriptures? What do I mean for them? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, this is a crucial verse for understanding Jesus' goal and purpose on earth. It's also a crucial verse for, for shaping the way that we will interpret the rest of the Bible. At first glance, you may not think that this topic has much to do with you. But if you follow Jesus with your life, it, ha- it affects so much of how you'll live every day. After all, did you know that close to 80% of your Bible is Old Testament? And when we, if you're like me, when we read from the Old Testament, we're not entirely sure what to make of it. Right? We're not super comfortable with it. We don't understand it fully. We, and so we're not sure what it means to us now that Jesus has come. Well, part of Jesus' point now was that everything he taught, everything that he would teach, was in total harmony with the Old Testament. Jesus was not contradicting, canceling, usurping, replacing, or otherwise diminishing what came before. So what was he doing? We saw this already. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That word fulfill is critical in this passage. In fact, it's central to everything Jesus says here. As opposed to abolishing the law, Jesus fulfills God's ever-enduring law. That's the big point here. Jesus has not gotten rid of the law. He's fulfilled God's ever-enduring law. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The key question, of course, is what does that mean? What, What does it mean that Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets? Well, first, perhaps the picture would help. The Greek word for fulfill is literally means to fill. Okay, to fill. Now, how many of you drank anything today? Well, we have a really underhydrated church. <laughs> I hope you've all drunk something. Now, whether that was water, milk, coffee, orange juice, whatever. How did you drink it? Right? You, you probably filled a cup with it, right? Or a, a bottle, or a thermos, a, ju- a mug. Now imagine the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, as that cup. Okay? A, a cup is good. It's potentially useful. But it needs to be filled. Jesus is the drink that fills the cup. We we drink of Jesus really through that vessel of the cup. He was born under the law. But without the drink, without the fulfillment, the cup is incomplete. Now, as to what that actually entails, there are several key aspects of the Old Testament, all of which end up pointing to Jesus and being fulfilled by him. I'm going to lean heavily on John Stott's explanation of this, as I think is very insightful. Ready for a 
four-minute crash course on the relationship between Jesus and the Old Testament? (laughs) Okay. First, you have doctrinal teaching in the Old Testament. It teaches us true things about God, man, sin, faith, and so on. Stott says, all the great biblical doctrines are there, yet it was only a partial revelation. Jesus fulfilled it all in the sense of bringing it to completion by his person, his teaching, and his work. So he brought it to completion. Second, there's lots of prophecy in the Old Testament. Much of it predicting things that would come in the future. And much of that actually looking forward specifically to the coming of a Savior Messiah. But Stott says, yet this was only anticipation. Jesus fulfilled it all in the sense that what was predicted came to pass in him. The the climax of those prophecies, of course, came to pass in Jesus' death and resurrection. And related to that, there is much in the Old Testament about the Jewish ceremonial system. You got temples and altars and priests and sacrifices and blood and all of that. And all these things found their perfect fulfillment in Christ. He fulfilled them. He he brought them. He was the perfect example of them. And then as the New Testament makes crystal clear, the ceremonies then ceased after Jesus. John Calvin comments, though, it was only the use of them that was abolished, for their meaning was more fully confirmed. Next, large chunks of the Old Testament are devoted to accounts of history. History, which, of course, continues into the new and clearly culminated with Christ. It all led up to him. Finally, the Old Testament has many ethical precepts, a.k.a. the moral law of God. The moral law of God. This is the law that was summed up by loving God and loving your neighbor. Stott explains that Jesus fulfilled them by obeying them, for he was born under law and was determined to fulfill all righteousness. But he does more than obey them himself. He explains what obedience will involve for his disciples. His purpose is not to change the law, still less to annul it, but to reveal the full depth of meaning that it was intended to hold. And this is what he was doing with God's moral law. Martin Lloyd-Jones sums up that everything that is in the law and the prophets culminates in Christ, and he is the fulfillment of them. It is the most stupendous claim that he ever made. That's saying something. Now, you might wonder, if Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament in all these ways, then wouldn't it mean that it actually can be set aside now for, all, for the newer, more complete revelation? But no. That would be kind of like saying the, the house has been built now. Construction is finished. So we don't need its foundation any longer. Go ahead and rip that out. See, Being fulfilled doesn't make something unnecessary or obsolete. Davies and Allison explain, if the law is fulfilled, it cannot on that account be set aside. Fulfillment can only confirm truth, not cast doubt upon it. 
Besides, with what Jesus says next, it would be pure foolishness to dismiss the law. Look with me at verse 18 again. It says, For truly I say to you, there's his authoritative declaration, this is true because I say so. <laughs> For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass. I mean, just think about that. Truly I say to you, in contrast, consider what the prophets would claim for authority. Thus saith the Lord. Later on, consider what the apostles would use as authority. It is written. But Jesus comes along and says, I say to you. He speaks on his very own authority. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The point here is that God's law is eternal. Okay? God's law is eternal. There is a fulfillment date on the law. There was not an expiry date on the law. In fact, Jesus says that all Scripture is going to outlast creation, heaven and earth, even down to the parts that seem of the smallest significance. Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. An iota was the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet, often written as small as a comma. A dot is believed to be an actual a punctuation mark, maybe like our, our periods, but it's a punctuation mark used in Hebrew. The smallest things they could write. Not even that's going to disappear. Now, you may think, that doesn't make total sense. Right? Because plenty of Bibles have been destroyed. You, you could even take a pen right now. Don't do this. But you could take a pen right now and scribble out a few things. A few iotas, a few dots. Ha! But Jesus wasn't talking about physical copies of Scripture being either destroyed or enduring. He was talking about the truths of God's Word, the truths that it reveals being eternal. It goes beyond what's written on the page. You could burn every Bible you see. doesn't make it any less true. doesn't make it any less permanent. God's word will endure until the end of time, until all is accomplished. It is ever enduring. I like how the message paraphrases this verse. It says, God's law is more real and lasting than the stars in the sky and the ground at your feet. So, underestimate it to your peril. So many of us tragically struggled to even pick it up off the shelf. As we read in 1 Peter 1, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. In every age, there is the temptation to minimize or diminish certain portions of Scripture. Even by the second century, like the century right after Christ, there was a famous heretic called Marcion. And Marcion actually rewrote the New Testament, eliminating all references to the Old Testament. 
And as he did so, this passage was obviously one of those that got erased. I honestly don't know how anything was left after that. But there are many people today, even reputed teachers, who effectively do similar. Whether it's feel-good preachers downplaying passages on God's wrath or holiness, or critical scholars who, claim, who suggest that the historical accounts of Scripture didn't actually happen, or authors who say that the law isn't just summed up by love, but actually our only command in Scripture is love. The only law we have is that. Or people who simply elevate one portion of Scripture above another, because this is more important than this. That may even include us sometimes, whether intentionally or not. But there are many Christian teachers today who suggest that Jesus' words, the words that he spoke while in his time while on earth, are more important than all others in the Bible. Ironically, some even say that this very Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7 to is the pinnacle of Jesus' teaching and surpasses everything else. There's a, a very popular Canadian pastor who said as much recently. that This is really the heart of everything. You can really downplay everything else. Some Christians are so opposed to legalism, which is a good thing to oppose, that they throw out the law altogether, which is a terrible thing to lose. Some people will pit the Old Testament versus the New Testament as if they are incongruous and discontinuous or even at odds with each other. But Jesus' attitude here is clearly different than that. There's a continuity between them. Some people believe that they, or think that they can believe in Jesus, but reject what certain parts of Scripture say. Lloyd-Jones warns us, they especially do this with the Old Testament. And he says, It must be said, however, that the question of our attitude to the Old Testament inevitably raises the question of our attitude towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything in the Old Testament, according to him, is the word of God. Not only that, it is all going to stand until it has all been fulfilled. Everything has meaning. Now, the greatest danger, I believe, in this, in downplaying the Old Testament, is actually in downplaying the gospel. J.C. Ryle says that the Old Testament is the gospel in the bud, the New Testament is the gospel in full flower. But, cut off a bud, see if a flower blooms. If we do not understand the law, if we do not understand the prophecies that were made about Christ, if we, if we do not seek to learn all that God has revealed to us about himself, we may be able to understand certain things about Jesus and about salvation, what he's done, but I guarantee you we will never understand the full meaning of his death and resurrection. And if we don't grasp those, we don't grasp Jesus. As Lloyd-Jones masterfully puts it, he says, the cross is finally understood only in terms of the law. 
What was happening upon the cross was that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was enduring in his own holy body the penalty prescribed by the holy law of God for the sin of man. The law pronounces that death must pass upon all who have sinned against God and broken his holy law. But then what Jesus did was he offered himself as the perfect sacrifice in our place, as the only human being to ever actually keep the law in fullness, perfectly. He died as the Lamb of God. That's from the law. He died as the Lamb of God to take away our sin, to make us righteous. And today, you are offered the chance to put your faith in Jesus to save you from your sin against God that deserves death. If it wasn't for Jesus, you'd have to keep the law perfectly for your entire life in order to be saved. But because of him, he says all we must do is repent of our sins and believe in him, to put our trust in him as our Savior. If you want to do that today, or even just want to talk about it more, understand it better, we would love to do that with you. But in the gospel, God really goes far beyond just saving us. Through Jesus fulfilling the law, he actually makes it so that his people can fulfill the law too. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8. It says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, get this, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So because Jesus died, and because we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, the law can now be fulfilled in us. In fact, this should make us eager to follow Jesus' example and to obey his word. And why is this? Because under Jesus' new covenant, the law doesn't disappear now, as the prophet Jeremiah promised, the law has now been written on our hearts. It's not going anywhere. And if you're a Christian, it's inside of you. God's put it there. Which I think leads directly into where Jesus goes next in Matthew 5. He basically takes this big theological principle. Jesus fulfills God's ever-enduring law. And he goes, this is what this means for you. This is what this means for you as a follower of mine. And what we're going to see may surprise you, but I doubt Jesus could be any clearer. It's this. We should still follow God's eternity-impacting law. We, Jesus' people, should still heed and seek to follow God's eternity-impacting law. See, not only is God's word eternal, but it has eternal repercussions for us. Look at verse 19. He says, Therefore, therefore, 
Nothing's going to pass away. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Notice, your salvation isn't dependent on how you treat the law. But the quality of your eternity is somewhat based on how you treat God's word to you. As we sang a moment ago, truths unchanged from the dawn of time that will echo down through eternity. The truths themselves will echo on, and so will our responses to those truths. Jesus' main concern here is that we maintain a very high view of Scripture. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You know how the past few years, the penalties for distracted driving have really skyrocketed, right? Uh, A decade ago, you could, you could drive and do just about anything you wanted on your phone. You could talk, text, you could play Angry Birds. I mean, now, there's no more getting off with warnings. Things have become way more serious. It's like a $1,000 fine, license suspension, car impoundment, or worse, right? Now, relaxing a law would be like, kind of like me saying, Driving and texting isn't that bad. I do it all the time. I've never gotten caught. I've never killed anyone because of it. It's pretty bad, right? Now, if I were to then say, to get you to do it, to encourage you to do the same, it would be even worse. Law enforcement is saying, this is really bad. People are dying because of distracted driving. And I'd be going, pish posh. You don't need to follow that silly rule. That's like what many people do with God's word all the time. They relax God's commandments. They downplay them. They soften them. They dismiss them. They don't bother learning to obey And they tell you that you don't have to either. You may need to ask, have have I done this before? And then repent. The stakes, you can see, are eternal. And no one wants to be least in anything in life, right? In in school or sports or popularity or work or or wealth. You don't want to be least. So, So why wouldn't we care about being least in the most important reality we will ever see? To be great or least in heaven's eyes. In Jesus' eyes. This is... An extremely important matter. Therefore, don't trivialize what God says in His Word. Trivialize this, and you trivialize yourself. 
And it's not just the greatest commandments that we need to concern ourselves with, is it? Jesus says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments. John Stott explains, true, not all the commandments are equally weighty, yet even one of the least of these commandments, precisely because it is a commandment of God the King, is important. To relax it, in other words, to loosen its hold on our conscience and its authority in our life, is an offense to God whose law it is. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I know many of you are still thinking, wait, 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 we're, we're supposed to still follow the law? You realize what you're saying? What about all the laws that were specifically for the people of Israel? Well, it's not relaxing commandments to say that things have changed. That's just reality. Okay? Most of us are Gentiles. We don't live in a theocracy. We're part of the church. And the ceremonial and judicial systems of Israel are no more. The Bible's very clear that Christ put an end to those. Certainly, there are some laws, instructions, some ceremonies that were meant for certain people of a certain time. There are laws that do not and will not apply to you. There's nothing wrong with saying that. So don't let, for example, anyone give you grief about eating shellfish or not wearing tassels on your cloak. But, but, that doesn't mean that even those random laws, those ancient laws, are emptied of all meaning. They still have things to teach us, still have things to show us, to point to, even in Canada in 2018. We should always be seeking to discover the full depth of meaning of any given law. And if it does still apply to us, then our default position as followers of Christ should be to follow our Lord's example. Patrick Schreiner comments, While our tendency is to argue that Christ accomplished the law on our behalf, the implication Jesus gives in Matthew 5, 19 and 20 is Christ's fulfillment of the law means that we should also practice the law. He is not giving us ideals we cannot attain, but a call to what it means to be a disciple. It means to follow the law like our teacher. So, what does it mean then that a Christian is no longer under law, but under grace? Well, what that means is that we aren't doing any of this in order to gain God's favor. It also means that we are not under the curse of the law anymore. That we have been freed from death and the penalty of sin. Finally, it also means that, that grace is now the sole basis of our covenant relationship with God. We can't earn it. But, notice that none of those things implies that we no longer need to obey what God says to do. Children who are here, Right now, you may sing, I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. But there will come a day when your faith in the God of the Bible is put to the test. And it's 
not bad to ask questions and to seek out answers to your questions, but what I would say to you today is this. Be very careful who you learn from and who you listen to. If someone, if anyone, tries to lower your view of God's Word, watch out! And that goes for all of us. If, if these words are from God, and many of us have bet our lives on that truth, if these words are from God, then these words are worthy of the highest esteem and the most careful obedience. You might ask, well, what commandments is Jesus talking about here? What does he actually want us to obey? Well, Jesus does say elsewhere that the two greatest commandments are love of God and neighbor. And he says that the entire law and prophets hang on those two commands. There are also the Ten Commandments, which serve to sum up God's law. But really, there are many, many commands in Scripture and not just in the Old Testament either. We need to be continually learning what these commands are and then seeking to obey them. So, are you? Are you consistently in the Word of God? Reading, hearing, meditating, applying And lest you think I'm exaggerating the importance of all this, listen to Jesus as he concludes. Verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So let's recoil at that. That sounds like an incredibly high standard, an impossible standard. And truthfully, it is. Because the scribes and the Pharisees of that day were seen as the super-righteous people of the day. And when people heard Jesus' words, they would have been stunned. How could our righteousness ever actually exceed or, or be greater than their righteousness? John Stott asked the questions for us. Was not obedience to God's law the master passion of their lives? Did they not calculate that the law contains 248 commandments and 365 prohibitions? And did they not aspire to keeping them all? How then can Christian righteousness actually exceed Pharisaic righteousness? And how can this superior Christian righteousness be made a condition of entering the the kingdom of God? It may appear that Jesus is saying that keeping the law can make us more righteous than they were. And that doing so is the only way to be sure to be saved. But that's not the case at all. I like Stott's answer and explanation to all these questions. This is key. Okay? Christian righteousness far surpasses Pharisaic righteousness in kind rather than in degree. It is not so much, shall we say, that the Christians succeed in keeping some 240 commandments when the best Pharisees may have only scored 230. No. Christian righteousness is greater than Pharisaic righteousness because it is deeper, being a righteousness of the heart. 
You catch that? Christian righteousness is greater than Pharisaic righteousness because it is deeper being a righteousness of the heart. A righteousness of the heart is possible in only in those whom the Holy Spirit has regenerated and now indwells. This is why entry into God's kingdom is impossible without a righteousness greater than that of the Pharisees. It is because such a righteousness is evidence of the new birth and no one enters the kingdom without being born again. You see? For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But if you've been born again, you have a far greater righteousness. You have a deeper righteousness. Jesus died to give you his righteous standing before God. And the Holy Spirit, it was then sent to indwell us and change our hearts, giving us that inward heart righteousness before the Lord. Now Jesus' people are now to live lives of deeper righteousness, not because we need to change, but because we've been changed. We don't follow God's word in order to get more of God's grace. But, and this is what we so often miss, we are given grace in order to follow God's word. Don't ever imagine that the standards are lower now because of Jesus. Quite the contrary. What I think you're going to find is that Jesus actually usually raises the bar for us. If he doesn't keep it the same, he raises it. Now that the law is written in our hearts, he expects even holier living from us. Just wait till you hear the rest of Matthew 5 and the radical challenges he gives us. Speaking of being challenged... Now that you know that all God's word still speaks to us today, we're planning to go deeper in learning God's law and what it means for us today together. In a couple months, we're going to start studying the book of Deuteronomy together. (laughs) Okay, we're going to spend a big chunk of this next year right in the heart of the Old Testament. It's going to be good for us. (laughs) But... That doesn't mean we're leaving Jesus behind. Not at all. Because it is going to point again and again and again ahead to him. And that's what I want to leave you with today. I hope that you leave here thankful for Jesus. Because without him, we'd be stuck with our empty cups and eternal disaster. But because he came, because he came and fulfilled God's law for us, then there's really good news. And because his spirit is now working to fulfill his law in us, it's even more astounding. We get the immense privilege, the honor of following in his steps. Everything centers on him. And it's in him and him alone that we must continue to stand. Do you pray with me?
Heavenly Father, some deep stuff today. Help our minds and our hearts to understand what you have to say. Even as we go, help us to keep pondering and meditating on this word to us. And may you continually change our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Show us your word, reveal it to us, and once we see, help us obey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.